You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Jonathan Marks, who is a professor of politics at Ursinus College and also the author of Let's Be Reasonable, Conservative Case for Liberal Education. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. I look forward to being unsiloed. Well, the whole idea of a liberal education is something which seems like an anachronism. It's hard to find people who are kind of standing up for liberal education in a world where everyone wants to know what it's for, right? With all the money that's being spent on education and all the student debt that people are accumulating, it seems like people are attacking the whole idea of a liberal education from both sides of the political spectrum. So I guess, you know, one way to start off would be what the heck is is a liberal education for anymore today in the, the 21st century? And maybe for people, the term liberal education has a lot of different definitions. So maybe we should start by saying what the heck is it and then what is it for? Okay, thank you. So Liberal education means education for freedom. That has a political meaning. It's education to be a citizen of free society, but it also has a, a transpolitical meaning, to be free simply, subject to the authority of one's own reason, which might be a court of appeal above even the free society that one inhabits in the United States and other countries that swear by enlightenment. Those two meanings are jammed together in a way. Thomas Jefferson says that the unbounded exercise of reason will tend to promote the principles, at least, of the Declaration of Independence. The way I understand liberal education is it's aimed at the shaping of reasonable people. I have in mind, in particular, and this will go well, I think, with the idea of being unsiloed, that human beings are narrow. John Locke says, uh, to go back to one of the inspirers of the Declaration, that we know but in part, we see but in part, and therefore it's no wonder that we conclude not right from our partial views. We're confined, and what liberal education is for is to help us, to the extent that human beings can, escape that confinement through what Locke calls comprehensive enlargement of mind. What does that mean really quickly? Well, one meaning is that we have to get into the presence of arguments with which we're unfamiliar, preferably good arguments, although we might also take advantage of the experience of people we suspect fall short of us in penetration because their experience might matter to our education. It also means getting beyond the sciences we study, the methods with which we're most familiar the books that we like to read, all of these can confine us in a way. It probably means reading at least some old books because one of the most important versions of our narrowness is the narrowness of time. It might also entail travel because part of our narrowness is the narrowness of place. And so we kind of begin to build up the components of what people usually mean when they speak of a liberal arts education by thinking of the assorted ways in which we're narrow. Why do we do this? Well, one of the things that I like about Locke is we don't do it, you know, to be well-rounded or to attend cocktail parties and say clever things. Instead, our narrowness not only confines our freedom, which I do think matters to most people, 
that confines our judgment. If we're narrow, we're prone to do stupid things. We're protected only really by fortune, a, a sort of fit between our prejudices and the world that we inhabit from doing very foolish things. So it's less to become more refined than to avoid foolishness that we engage in liberal education. That's an extended answer. I, I think if you were to ask a typical university administrator, what is the purpose of a, a liberal education or a liberal arts education, they would probably provide a very different answer. They'd say something about, well, you can't just study the sciences. You need to study some other things so that you can understand how to function in a complex world. You need to understand diversity. You need to understand, I mean, they would offer, I think, a somewhat different explanation that would ultimately be tied to very practical goals, right? So the attack from the STEM side is that STEM is valuable. Sciences are valuable. I don't think anybody disputes that. Practical things that'll get you a job, right? No one gets a job as a philosophy major or as an English major, except at Starbucks, right? And so in order to defend the liberal arts, I think that they have to use the language of practicality and somehow reinvent this discipline as one that helps you to perform better in the world. Is that wrong or is that incomplete? Well, I, I certainly don't think it's wrong, although it seems to me that the language I used in attempting to justify liberal education was practical, right? That is to say that you need comprehensive enlargement of mind, again, not to be well-rounded, not to be refined, but to avoid doing stupid things. So our narrowness prevents us from being good judges in our chosen field at work, right? As parents, as friends, all of those things. So it, it seems to me the heroes of my book in some way are um, people like Benjamin Franklin, right? Benjamin Franklin formed a club called the Junto, which on the one hand sounds a lot like a philosophy club, right? They studied essays or they wrote essays on problems of natural and moral philosophy, but at the same time, they concern themselves both with personal advancement and with matters like organizing neighborhood watches. They moved easily between those things because being reasonable cuts across those different things. So it seems to me that, well, two things I'd say to the question you raised. The first thing I'd say is what you described, what administrators would say, is actually quite a grab bag of different justifications. Some of them vocational, some of them not. Administrators, depending on where you're at, right, they might talk about social justice, they might talk about citizenship, they might talk about, as you say, dealing with a complex world, right, whatever that might mean. But it's a grab bag of things, some of them relatively practical in a pretty narrow sense, right, this will get you the job that you need others practical in a much more global sense, right? You need soft skills in order to prosper at whatever you're doing. To me, what's lacking in that is, is a center. Liberal education or education, broadly speaking, is for everything and nothing. And what I favor is, is putting reason at the dead center of things. And maybe I'll say more as you follow up rather than continuing along those lines. Well, when you mentioned reason, and I think you made this distinction between kind of reason as a tool and reason as an authority. I, I certainly know that in, in business school, we spend an awful lot of time teaching people how to persuade, right? And how to make their way through an organization. And, and we emphasize, without using the term, we, we're really kind of emphasizing rhetoric, right? We're helping people to use emotion where it's needed and to use logic where it's needed, as long as you can get the job done. And if we view reason as sort of just a tool in, in our toolbox, then that's sort of more 
akin to, to sophistry, right? You emphasize the importance of not just convincing others, but convincing yourself. And you emphasize that we're much better at kind of picking apart other people's arguments than our own. Is that a part of education that we're underemphasizing? The idea that you need to learn how to pick apart your own arguments? Well, I think it is. And maybe I'd use the term reasonableness or reasonability to describe a certain disposition toward arguments and toward other human beings with whom you're engaged in arguments. So if I were to grab you by your collar and say, Greg, be reasonable, I wouldn't necessarily mean brush up on Logic 101. Maybe you've forgotten it since you were an undergraduate. Instead, I mean something more like, let's stop fooling around. Let's start hawking our wares. Let's stop hawking our wares. Let's stop trying to win. Let's stop boosting our tribe. Let's stop puffing ourselves up. And let's try to see what valid conclusions we're able to draw from what we think we know. And if we don't know enough to draw any valid conclusions, try to figure out what we'd have to do in order to get in a better position to draw those conclusions. It seems to me that more often than not, when reason fails, it it has more to do with that kind of dispositional failure than it has to do with a failure of skills. People with high cognitive abilities, right? You run into them on Facebook and on Twitter, high IQs, high cognitive abilities, sometimes a frustrating ability to poke holes in our arguments. We might think of them as hyperpartisans who might come across them as shills. They might be very talented lawyers, but what they're looking to do is trying to win. And in spite of their keen intelligence, they might be dogmatic, right? They've got an idea of how things are and they're looking to advance it. Now, you can't trust me in business-related matters. The first time I sat down in New York City at a Starbucks, I said, this place is never going to make it here. So I'm not going to claim to know a great deal about business matters, but it seems to me that that dogmatism understood in roughly the way I described it, that you're determined to stick to, apologize for, defend, advance an opinion, right, in an arena of combat is poisonous in many areas, right, not just in the seminar classroom. So you have to find a way, I think, to initiate students, but also, you know, us too, faculty members, staff, we sort of have to remind ourselves of these things, it seems to me, in in a mode of discussion, in a mode of speech in which it's seen as a means by which human beings who are trying to get more reasonable, who are seeking the truth, can do it together. And it seems to me that that's a a core function of universities that is not altogether neglected, but is somewhat neglected. When we're talking about critical thinking, we, we often mean just a kind of skill in detecting fallacies and that kind of thing without much emphasis on how you're going to use those skills. Well, if the purpose of the university is to, in part, manufacture reasonable people, as you mentioned, there there seems to be two justifications for that. One would be civil, right? That our culture and society is going to be better in some way if it's made up of people who are, are reasonable. But also part of it is an appeal to the individual, saying that you yourself as an individual will be better in some way if you're reasonable. And so with respect to the second one, right, how individuals can become better, you reference Locke and, and Locke says that this is, this is not an easy thing, right? This is a very difficult thing and that you constantly encounter obstacles and therefore it requires some kind of determination or, or willpower. And that means that oftentimes that 
could be an unpleasant experience for people. Universities are, are not in the business of, of selling unpleasant experiences. How are you <laughs> supposed to market the university if you say, you know what, when you come here, you're not going to enjoy this, right? I tell my students, I say, look, the customer's always right, but make sure you find out first whether you're going to a boot camp or a spa, because if you think you're going to a spa and you get a boot camp, well, then you're going to be disappointed. But you know, if we market ourselves as a spa and then we do the bait and switch and provide a boot camp, then the customer is going to be upset. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that there's a real problem there. That is to say that colleges and universities do often market themselves as often as producing great changes, right? So you might go out into the world and say, oh, I'm offering a transformational experience, but without talking too much about what the costs of that might be, what the difficulties might be. So how do you do that? Well, I'd say maybe three different things. I'm probably not going to remember all three of them, but I'll do my best <laughs> here. One of them is, I think it's worth recognizing that people are pretty motivated in a lot of ways to be reasonable, especially if it's pitched to them in, in a practical way. It doesn't have to be pitched to them altogether in a practical way, but maybe especially when it's pitched in a practical way. Locke says, but I'm not relying on his authority, I think it's true, right? in my experience, that people tend to get nervous and unhappy with themselves if their understanding of things isn't well-grounded, right? if that's exposed. And Sometimes that can lead to productive thought and discussion. Sometimes it leads somebody to grab onto the first grounds that they can find without too much thought into whether it's good or bad. But the motive is there. And I think that's worth recalling. It's something one can work with, even if a person has to get over a certain hurdle to come to a view that's, that's more well-grounded than the view she had before. Second of all, I'm not so sure it's true that, I mean, I do think it is true, just what you said, that we tend to market ourselves as providers of a certain kind of pleasant experience. And Ursinus actually has done this. I don't know how hard we're doing it now, but we used to talk about something called the Ursinus promise. And what that promise said, more or less, is that if you're willing to sign on and work very hard, then we'll help you. Right. In a way, it was a combination of an idea that will provide a supportive atmosphere. Students want that. Parents want that, especially out of small schools like the one I work at. In some ways, that is what we're selling, right? High-touch institutions. We've got places you can go for assistance. But the first part, if you're willing to work hard, I think that does have some appeal, maybe especially to parents of students, but maybe to students too when they start to think about it. So th that's the second thing that I'd say. And the third thing is, I think there always is a bait and switch in a way. That is to say, at least on my understanding of liberal education, nobody exactly comes to college thinking, you know, if you were to survey people, why are you here? Nobody's going to say, well, to become reasonable. That's why I want to be here. I, I don't believe I've ever heard anybody say that. They'd say a, a great variety of things. I want to play a Division Three football team. I liked the way that the campus looked a lot. I was once presenting before a group of parents and students at a college I was working at, and I said, well, how many of you have taken a look at the college catalog? And I'm not exaggerating when I say that in this particular room, nobody had looked at it, right? So, so people come to college with a wide variety of motives, and 
you do switch it up, right? Once you get into a classroom. And there are two ways, I think, in which, and now I'm going to say three things with two, the third thing to have two subparts, two ways in which you can maybe at least make the pain seem worthwhile. One is you really have to show in the classroom or some manner or another that progress is possible, right? That is to say that we're not just talking about being reasonable, but in difficult questions to confront you, even where there aren't certain answers, that there are standards maybe provisional, that we share by means of which we can feel like we've made some progress. So if you get in there, you think, well, I'm making progress about questions that matter to me, then you might be willing to live with a bit of pain. And the second thing is showing that there is some pleasure in this too, right? That there's a feeling of accomplishment in making progress, especially in the company of others who are devoting themselves to something like the same endeavor, which goes beyond your individual classroom into other classrooms at your college and beyond your college, so that you can feel part of a kind of good and maybe even grand enterprise. Right, the scientific enterprise is like that, and I think natural scientists often are engaged to feel a part of that. But reason does go beyond the scope of the natural sciences, and I think that colleges and universities ought to think of themselves as initiating people into a broader enterprise of rationality. Well, when I read that quote from Locke, which I hadn't recalled reading many years ago, where he emphasized the effort that's required to overcome these obstacles, of course, it reminded me of Danny Kahneman's work and the whole idea of system one and system two. And we do teach that in pretty much every part of our business school education. And I think the attractiveness to to people there is that it helps them to make better decisions, but it's mainly taught as a solitary enterprise or a solitary exercise where, you know, you internally scrutinize your own reasoning and and maybe put yourself in a position where you can examine it from the outside. But you emphasize the social aspect of it. You emphasize that really the the best way to become reasonable is to engage in a collective pursuit of knowledge. And it reminded me actually of Hugo Mercier, who I interviewed recently. He wrote a book on this, said that we've evolved. Reason is is essentially evolved as a social tool, and that without exposing your your beliefs to the scrutiny of others, you're, you're almost never going to achieve much in the way of knowledge. Could you talk a bit about this social aspect and how can universities encourage this collective pursuit of knowledge and the collective kind of pursuit of reasonableness? Thank you. Yeah. And I think, again, no expert in businesses or business school, but Kahneman, I like his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is most of what I know of him. I haven't read much in the the papers that he did with Tversky on, on which the book is based. But one thing he emphasizes is actually that individuals are very bad at detecting these fallacies. And so one constant refrain of the book is conversations we're having around the water cooler, reminding ourselves of all these fallacies we're subjected to. So, so in a lot of ways, Kahneman thinks this is quite a social kind of activity, or, or, or so it seems mm-hmm. to me. We're not very good at doing it individually. So that's the first thing I'd say, but I, I don't think that there's less inconsistency there than it might seem. It seems to me, I'll come back to the social thing in a minute, but just thinking about Kahneman again, that um, I like that literature a lot. In fact, we've taught some of it in CIE, <laughs> the Common Intellectual Experience, which is our first year seminar here at Ursinus College. But it does focus mainly on spotting fallacies. It's about the avoidance of error, Mm -hmm. which I think is important, but it it talks much less about what good judgment is in a more positive way. I do think that's important, probably for psychologists working in decision-making, 
but also for universities. Again, thinking about what provisional standards do we have for trying to distinguish good judgments from bad judgments, maybe a little bit clearer in the natural sciences and the humanities, but nonetheless, what provisional standards do we have available to us? And then also, what qualities of character, what qualities of mind might be conducive to making good judgments? What are the intellectual virtues, so to speak? Are there virtues that aren't strictly intellectual that might be conducive to forming good judgments? I think these are important questions that expand us somewhat beyond the range of how can I avoid this fallacy and that fallacy and the other fallacy, which I think is quite useful. We do make a lot of mistakes that fall nicely under the headings that Kahneman provides for you. But I do think that much of this is social. If you go back to Aristotle's politics and why he thinks that we're political animals, he in a way begins with language, the term for which is logos, which is also the term for reason, right? Those two things go together and our our language isn't private. Even when we're alone, we're thinking with other human beings, right? We might be thinking with Aristotle, right? Instead of with Jonathan and Greg, or we might be thinking with Jonathan and Greg while we're alone. I think some of it is solitary, right? We don't simply hang around in groups and talk about things. It's often quite helpful to me to go into a room and shut the door and think, So I think that kind of solitude is useful to cultivate sometimes. But like I said, I still think there's even a social aspect to that, as I said, because you're thinking in language and with other people, whether they're present to you physically at the moment or not. Because I would say one of the critiques that you hear often from folks is that the universities now are less receptive to environments where conversations can take place and where disagreement can be aired and resolved in ways that sometimes begin with with discomfort, maybe sometimes end with discomfort when people talk about safe spaces and canceling and so forth. And I think in the book, you, you address that. Is discomfort a necessary part of education? Do we strive to maybe coddle our students too much and protect them from the harm that they might experience when they encounter the beliefs and ideas of others? Well, I do think discomfort is a necessary part of education. There may be joy that you get to through discomfort, but in the end, it's unpleasant to discover. You know, that you're narrow. It's unpleasant in a couple of ways. It hurts the pride to make this discovery, but also there may be beliefs that you really cherish that anchor you in the world, that when they come to be challenged, you may feel as if the very basis upon which you've directed your life up to this point might be shakier than you thought it was. Right? You might be an Orthodox Christian confronted with a village atheist in the classroom, for example, and there's bound to be some discomfort in that. Do colleges and universities coddle their students too much? Well, I think colleges and universities are in a difficult position, although eventually I'll get to the answer that I think the answer is, is a qualified yes. We do have students, whether it's a product of increased diagnosis, whether it's a product of less stigma about the receipt of mental health services, or whether it's the case that anxiety and depression simply have been increasing in the general population, that when we look at a classroom now, even as opposed to a classroom when I started teaching 20-some-odd years ago, you're looking at a population, a non-trivial percentage of which is likely to be anxious and or depressed, right? And so it might be the case that destabilizing education 
might be harder, at least it seems possible to me, might be more difficult for some of those students than it is for students who are not suffering from those diagnosed or undiagnosed maladies and one's heart goes out to them. So I think there's a way in which education is just harder in that atmosphere. At the same time, I agree with John Hyde and Greg Lukanoff, who wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. They didn't really choose that title. It was foisted on them by an editor of a magazine article that they wrote that preceded the book. They don't want to push the coddling line too hard, nor nor would I. I I don't think that my students come to us coddled, and I, I don't think that we simply coddle them. What they do say is that what you feel traumatized by is, is at least partly a learned thing. And so if you suggest to students somehow or another that maybe they should be shaken up by the use of a racial epithet in a 19th century piece of literature, well, they might just get the idea that they ought to be shaken up by it. If you let on that maybe students should be shaken up by an expurgated version of a racial epithet on an exam, right, an N dash or a B dash on an examination, you know, on employment discrimination or employment law, well, they might just come to suppose that is traumatized and they ought to be traumatized by it. So I think we want to be careful about that. I think probably faculty and administrators have participated to some extent in expanding the range of things by which we think it might make sense to be traumatized by, really to be thrown off, to have our hearts race, right? To feel like we're going to faint, right? On the basis of things like that. Lukinoff and Hyde also say that, and I wouldn't want to go too far in this direction, but that yeah, reason is in some sense, it's a piece of the cure. And they talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Which in a way is precisely directed toward getting us to think about what we, we call our lived experience in a different and healthier way than we're accustomed to think of it. Now, I wouldn't want to think of myself as engaging in therapy with people who have diagnosed problems, which they ought to be seeing, right? A a licensed therapist. But at the same time, I, I do take quite seriously the general argument that the road to psychic well-being is not by refusing to question in any way our lived experience of unease. So I guess that's why I'd say to that, yes, there is something to that. And I think we would do better to try to use the language of trauma less when we're not dealing with people who are diagnosed with trauma-related illnesses. Well, I'm generally hesitant to make any kind of generalizations about different generations or time periods, but it it does seem that when people were expressing concern about the university, you you referenced Alan Bloom, for instance. I remember reading his book back in, I guess it was 87 or so, that people were focused on some of the same things as critics and some different things. I think back then people were were talking about the typical undergraduate as being laid back and, and cool and they were slackers or ironic or they didn't take things seriously. And that was sort of one of the critiques. I think now people talk less about that and make different assessments of our students. Not only the one that you mentioned, the one that we were just discussing, which is that students are brittle, but at the same time, right, we have students who are described as warriors, right? And it's sometimes hard to reconcile the notion of, of a, a warrior with kind of a, a brittle person. Are people just repeating the mistakes of their ancestors by worrying unnecessarily about 
the youth of today, right? Or is there something genuine in these concerns? Well, that's a good question. If I had to lean on one side or another, I tend to go with the first because despite what I said about anxiety, students just don't look that much different to me than when I started teaching, not that much different. I talk a little bit in the book about things that seem to me to be of longer standing about students that you can count on. Um, So they're likely to feel ashamed about a fairly wide variety of things. They're likely to be individualists. They're likely to say, I want to stand up for what I believe in. And they're likely to be, in spite of everything, they're likely to be quite interested in learning things. I worry about selling our students short. So let me say a couple more things about that. First of all, I do think there is some difference in the way in which students and activists talk about themselves in a bit more of a psychologizing political matter so so that the language of trauma is used in a political context, right? So that if I question, student X might describe that as re-traumatizing, which I think is less likely in the 90s than it is now. At the same time, if you read Jonathan Rausch's Kindly Inquisitors, you do see some of this psychological language being deployed in the late 80s and, and early 90s. So I think that it's more a phenomenon that has grown than something that's new. I talk about John Haidt and Greg Lukunov's thesis about Generation Z, right? the generation presently in college. I forget their precise, the beginning of their birth year. And I try to warn against, although as I said, I, I like that book very much and in broad outline would consider my book in the same camp as theirs, but they want to argue that Generation Z folks are particularly uncommonly risk-averse. And they base that in some ways on data from surveys like the Monitoring the Future survey out of the University of Michigan, which asks questions like, I, I forget the exact wording, but things like, did you like being a little danger every now and then? And they point out that if you compare how answers to that question looked at um, at a certain period, I'm going to make this up, maybe the early 2000s, there's been a real dip in students who say, yes, I like risk a lot, or young people who say that and say, say well, this generation is, is uncommonly risk-averse, brittle, and, and so on and so forth. And they talk about childcare as uh, how parents take care of children, as how that sort of happens, right? Too much emphasis on self-esteem, trying to protect them from scraping their knees and so on and so forth. But if you go a little bit back further back in that same data, you find that, I don't know, maybe we're about the same age. Are you a Generation X guy? Well, I'm Generation X. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at that same Monitoring of the Future survey data, you know, Generation X, and I, my own experience suggests that we rode beltless in the backs of station wagons, were allowed to mm. skin our knees, walk to school, wielding knives and running, you know, and so on and so forth. At least according to that same Monitoring of the Future survey data, we were more risk averse than the present generation. So I'm reluctant to exaggerate differences. There are some things that seem to me to be probably different. One is the one I mentioned, greater incidence of at least reported anxiety and depression. Another one is that there are some differences when you look long-term over attitudes towards speech. That's changed some, certainly since the early 90s. So there are some things that have changed, but I, I tend to think that students are mostly the same. When conservative critics of the university point to 
situations where speakers are disinvited and so forth. And there's these examples of professors being fired for saying innocuous things. And you you call them shark attacks, right? And I like that because that actually is in the Kahneman Tversky model, right? We pay way more attention to shark attacks than we do to more common, more frequent ways of dying because they're just so they're so outrageous and they're so dramatic. Do you think that those critics are, are really exaggerating the the climate? And I think that they're basically making these arguments as a way of saying that the universities are are hopeless and that they're impossible to salvage. They're just so completely beyond the pale. Is that how we should look at them? Should we just say this is just sensationalism and, and a cognitive bias at work? Well, not quite. But one of the objectives of my book is certainly to talk to conservatives. I consider myself a conservative. And I do think that increasingly, although there's long been a conservative criticism of higher education that goes back to the 1950s and prior to it. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that conservatives were super friendly to higher education before, and now they're unfriendly. But I do think there's been a darkening of mood. I think that there was more effort toward trying to salvage colleges and universities when I started off in college, maybe at the height of the influence of books like The Closing of the American Mind than there is now, where a guy like Roger Kimball, his longtime commentator in higher education, he'll say things like the university is devoted to the destruction of truth, which, if true, would probably be a pretty good reason to abandon them. There's a kind of attitude toward the university which goes along with an attitude toward American life right now, which you might describe as Flight 93-ism. That, that's based on an essay by Michael Anton in the run-up to the campaign of 2016 called the Flight 93 election, which he essentially argues, right, that things are so far gone in progressive America, conservatives have lost absolutely every fight, that you have to do something radical, it doesn't really matter, maybe your guy doesn't know how to fly the plane. But if you don't do something, death is absolutely certain, right? One more Democrat elected and we're doomed. And a conservative who feels that way is likely to feel that way even much more, right, of the left liberal university. I do think that's exaggerated. That is to say that the things you're talking about, for example, cases in which speakers are, are disinvited, those do happen, but they also happen quite rarely. There just aren't very many of them. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education you know, keeps track of them. And even in boom years, we're talking dozens of instances, right? Not hundreds of instances or even you know, more than 50 instances. So there aren't a lot of instances of that. But more broadly speaking, if you're talking about the suppression of conservatives on campus, you do have to look at instances in which it happens. You do have to look at evidence that people are willing to discriminate on the basis of ideology, of which there is some. But you have to also look at the fact that you know, if you look at the Higher Education Research Institute survey of faculty members, which is done every few years or so and takes in a pretty large number of faculty, what's job satisfaction like for liberals and conservatives? It's about the same. You know, it's high, and conservatives are seem to feel about as happy um, in a higher education, or at least to regret no more than anybody else the decision to go into higher education than their liberal counterparts. I want to give you one other example, which is our student voices, conservative voices, suppressed on campus. 
And I think to some extent that's true, right? That is to say, I wouldn't dismiss it altogether. There's a, a decent amount of survey data to indicate, one, that you know, almost everybody is sort of uncomfortable about discussing controversial matters, but conservatives and Republicans considerably more so, markedly more so than liberals are. But at the same time, if you look at a survey like the, I think it's called the Campus Free Expression Survey, which a group called the Heterodox Academy does, which is sometimes cited as evidence of how bad things are for speech on campus. They look at issues of controversy and say, you know, you're very reluctant to talk about it, somewhat reluctant, not at all, and so on. Maybe there are four or five ways of looking at it. And if you ask even conservatives, you know, how do you feel about talking about race, right? Not exactly an issue, right, that's uncontroversial. In the classroom, how many of them feel very reluctant to talk about it? What percentage? And I emphasize very reluctant because I'm somewhat reluctant to talk about ever anything. So I figure, you know, a good moderator can get somebody who's somewhat reluctant to talk about something to talk about. A good moderator might have a harder time with someone who's very reluctant. What's the percentage? 7.7%. 7.7%. You would expect that number based on shark attack stories to be about a gazillion percent certainly not 7.7. I don't Mm -hmm. want to claim that the survey is the be-all and end-all. Certainly, they had to divide up into a lot of groups. The number of conservatives they were looking at was not a very large number. Probably if you built in the error bars, there'd be a fair bit of possibility for error in there. There are differences from campus to campus, certainly. So, for example, if you look at your average American campus, conservatives are maybe 11.7% on a four-year campus faculty, but if you go to a place like Harvard, it's probably more like 1.5 to 3%. So you might figure, you know, the more conservatives are outnumbered, the more they might have problems like that. So I'd say, yes, some difficulty in discussing controversial issues, some reluctance to discuss controversial issues. We ought to be better at dealing with that, I think. You have that problem at Thanksgiving dinner too, but colleges, universities, institutions devoted to this kind of thing. So we probably need to do better than we're doing. It's just that we're not doing nearly as poorly as uh, some conservatives say that we are. And I think it's a lost opportunity. I think conservatives can do a lot of good on campuses. Robert George over at Princeton University, he says that Princeton is a pretty good place to be a conservative, particularly for students. And he also says that it takes perhaps five people on a campus of the size of Princeton's to make a significant difference. He founded a program there called the James Madison Program in Ideals and Institutions, which he thinks made a real difference to the quality and character of conversation on campus. So if we think all we can do is take a torch to it, first of all, those places aren't burning down, right? So in some sense, we're probably making matters worse for ourselves, at least if the things that we're most concerned about are those, those nasty elite institutions, they're not going anywhere. You know, best the, the burn it down mentality might get rid of some institutions that are sort of okay from a conservative perspective. So I think it's a lost opportunity. It's counterproductive. And there are a lot of things that conservatives could value in higher education, even as it stands right now, programs you could point to that conservatives probably ought to be pretty happy with. And there, there's a lot of room for growth and intervention there as well that I think that we don't tap, right? If our primary spokesperson for higher education reform is, you know, a guy like Charlie Kirk and an organization like Turning Point USA, which really has nothing at all to say about how to reform higher education, but is uniformly hostile. Well, it just seems like an odd alignment, though. You know, we're talking about the liberal university and, and the promotion of reasonableness. And I guess, is it a pure historical accident that 
people who are advocating this ideal might also be more likely to characterize themselves as conservatives. I mean, certainly that was not the case for most of history, I would imagine. This is a temporary alignment. Why are people who describe themselves as conservatives generally more in the camp of the preservation of, of liberal education? It seems rather orthogonal. If anything, if I were to predict ex ante, I would, I would imagine it would be the opposite. I think that's a good question. I would say that that seems to me, especially because on campus, conservatives are just such a tiny voice there, that you actually find plenty of people who are liberals who advocate for liberal education. And some books on edu liberal education, I think, are, are pretty good. I may not disagree with them entirely, are written by people who are liberals. Alan Bloom is no conservative, I don't think. That's right. He wouldn't describe himself as a conservative, nor do he describe himself as a liberal. But a fellow like Andrew Dobanko, who wrote a book called College, right, a helpful title, now heads up an organization called the um, Teagle Foundation, which is engaged in the preservation of liberal education in a lot of ways. I, I think his politics are liberal. I think he would forthrightly say that they are. But that's not quite an answer to your question. I think there are some accidental elements to it. One piece of it is that I think that colleges and universities have certainly for a long time been overwhelmingly left liberal institutions. And if you've got an organization that's predominantly left liberal, there's going to be a lot of pressure on nonpartisan modes of doing things. So, for example, the watchword of a research university might be, and you can look back at how the American Association of University Professors justified right, academic freedom in the developing research university. In the word, you'll see the, <laughs> the word nonpartisan appear pretty often. But if you're in a saturated left liberal atmosphere, regardless of how good your professional standards are, they may be very good. I mean, I think that college and university professors, once I've encountered, are by and large professionals regardless of how good those standards are, partisan bias is going to tend to, especially in subjects that have any kind of political resonance, have some impact on, on what you perceive as a problem. It's going to have some impact on what research conclusions you are inclined to view skeptically. It's going to have some impact on which students you regard as troublemakers to throw the book out and which students to regard as heroes whose infractions of the student conduct code should be preserved for posterity. It's going to have an impact on what speakers you think are worth bringing in and what speakers you have suspicions about. It's going to have an impact across a wide variety of ways in which you think about your institution, right? In the broadest sense, you might think more and more that reality just sort of has a liberal bias, as we would say. So in other words, it's usually that whoever's in the minority is most in favor of free speech and liberal discourse. And if the university was dominated by conservatives, then it would be uh, the liberals that would be advocating. Yeah, I think so. Certainly with respect to, and we're talking about liberal education in a broad way, but certainly that's the way it works with respect to academic freedom issues, right? Even folks on the left who, you know, out of one corner of their mouth might say academic freedom is just a cloak to preserve the status quo. If you try to spread through their speech, they're going to start talking a lot about academic freedom. So I think it's built in, right? The more and more at least certain colleges and universities become predominantly left liberal, the more conservatives will look at them and say, well, you know, if we could just get a focus on reason and inquiry, you know, Dayenu, that would be enough for us. Whereas if you are a um, 
left liberal at the university, you might think, well, you know, reality really has a social justice bias. And so we should make sure that the university is directly devoted to social justice. When people start talking about inquiry, then you're more inclined to say, well, you know, that's just dithering, right? Or it's secretly conservative or something like that. I do think there is a lot of devotion to, especially if you think of liberal education as connected to shaping reasonable people, there is a lot of devotion to it at universities still, a lot to be tapped into. So I don't want to exaggerate and say, well, that's all gone. Nobody's interested in it. Nobody's going to faint, right? If I go up to one of my colleagues, even if uh, you know, he's a very progressive colleague, and I say, you know, what we really should be doing is not propagandizing, but we should be helping our students inquire into the truth of the matter. Most of them aren't going to say, well, no, that's not at all what we're trying to do. We're instead trying to push our favorite point of view. And they're not going to say that, to use double negative, they're, they're not going to say that, not because they're trying to hide what they really think, but because that idea that one ought to follow arguments where they lead, right, instead of deciding what you think and then gathering the evidence that supports it and then trying to cram it down the throat of anybody who disagrees, right, the idea that that's not the way we ought to be going about things, that still has a lot of resonance at colleges and universities. It still matters. What do I mean when I say most people at colleges and universities are, are I think, more or less professionals, right? So you certainly have an, an activist current, but you also have, let's call it, speaking of science in the broadest sense, a scientific conscience. And those are both there to be activated, so to speak, which is why you see, you know, big institutions with, with very different neighborhoods, right? Things differ from department to department, office to office, event to event. And what I'm arguing for is not some radical transformation where we've got something utterly different from what we had before, but in a way I'm arguing, well, let's, let's make some more space. Let's try to put first this devotion to reason, that that's already there, and try to think about things as much as possible in those terms. So even when we're thinking, well, we need more diversity and inclusion, let's at least look at the programs that are devoted to that and ask ourselves, well, they seem likely to work. What's the evidence for them? And also, do we know what we mean by diversity and why we want it? Do we know what we mean by inclusion and why we want it and, and what might foster it and so on? So, you know, put reason and reasonability first, right, as much as you possibly can is one piece of this, but also with the recognition that any reforms you're going to be able to make are, are likely to be sort of neighborhood by neighborhood, department by department, program by program, college by college. And if you have success in one place, right, it might become a model for other places as well. I'd really want to emphasize that even small colleges tend to be complicated places with lots of people to talk to, lots of neighborhoods, lots of convictions, and there are wells to tap into sometimes in quite unexpected places, including places that would often be characterized by people outside of the universities as irredeemably left-wing. Now, look, there are, there are critics on the other side that also want to kind of abolish the university because they see it as being hopelessly devoted to the preservation of the status quo and injustice. And I think we began at the beginning, you were saying that there's an instrumental reason why you would want to promote liberal arts, why you'd want to promote reasonableness to advance the just society. And I think you know, Richard Rorty would probably agree. I mean, he said, if the universities are not for the promotion of justice, then what are they for? And so for those people who take that view, they might say, well, this business about reasonableness and, and this business about promoting the, the liberal arts, this is, first of all, not necessarily going to lead to a more just society. It may just lead to dilettantism. And the content is just 
elitist and is not really relevant for most people. I think you also think that critique is misguided. I do, although as with conservative critique, I also don't want to claim that there's nothing to it. Like to go back to a long, long time ago, right? If you look at Plato's Republic, you've got a guy arguing there that justice is the advantage of the stronger, but by which he means what passes for justice in any given society is a mask, right, for the interests of somebody. And I don't think that's altogether true, right? Nor do I think it's altogether true of reason. But I do think that one has to take seriously the idea that sometimes when somebody is imploring somebody else to be reasonable, what they really mean is think like me or shut up, right? Or something like that. And universities, as I said, they're in complicated places. They do sit in a certain kind of society. And there are pieces of it that are quite radical, it seems to be, and other pieces that don't question very much, right? The society into which students are going to be sort of turned into, shaped, right, in an appropriate manner to live in the kind of side that we've already got. So I think it's worth pressing from both the right and the left the claim that colleges and universities stand for reason, because it's very hard to stand for, and these challenges are always welcome. But yeah, it, I mean, it does seem to me that that's, that's not quite right on at least a couple of levels. One is the elitist charge. And I write in my book right here talking about particularly humanities education, but that is part of the comprehensive enlargement of mind that liberal education is about. I talk about W.E.B. Du Bois teaching at Atlanta University, right, early in his careers. This is early in the, the, the 20th century, maybe even late in the 19th century. Now that I think about it, I mean, he was born in 1868, so probably was late in the 19th century. And he's talking about teaching students about the kinds of questions that were taught to, he didn't use the terms, but, you know, aristocrats by Plato. And in effect, he's making the argument that this is part of the human birthright to think about the riddle of existence, as he puts it. And that strikes me as a, a powerful argument, right, is to say that the idea that only an elite <laughs> have the door opened to that kind of thing, that that strikes me as itself almost in a backhanded way, an elitist view. I talk about Earl Shores, right, who much more recently started a program called the Clementi Course, which was a program in the humanities, taught philosophy, art history, political theory, logic to a group of students who couldn't make more than one and a half times the poverty level. And the only qualification not always met was that you could read a tabloid newspaper. That program has since expanded, but he found students who were responsive to that kind of education certainly thought that they had benefited greatly from it. Not just practically, although that mattered, but one of the students says in the course of a class, reflecting on the class, it was the first time anyone had ever taken our opinion seriously. So it seems to me that an invitation to participate in a dialogue about matters that you know are not merely matters of, of necessity, right? How do I get food on my table tomorrow? Which, of course, <laughs> matter a great deal, and I don't want to set them aside. But nonetheless, the idea that participating... In trying to cultivate your understanding, which again has both practical benefits and maybe the kind of things that we call good in themselves, that this is part of sort of human dignity. That strikes me as, you know, in many ways, an anti elitist perspective. And then I'd say, you know, the last thing I'd say is just to me, the idea that what universities are doing, I mean, universities that are, especially ones that are really identifiably left progressive, which, which are 
often the ones that are being criticized by left activists. So often they're talking about places where Brown is really, you know, serving the status quo. I mean, again, yeah, maybe there's something to it. I mean, they sit right in a society and they cooperate with it, but they're churning out students who have learned a great deal about what's wrong, right? Or what might be wrong with the world they're walking into. And it seems to be just bizarre to describe these students or these programs as slavishly devoted to status quo bias. I understand how the argument works structurally, but it would seem to amount to the idea that because these colleges rely on student loans or because these colleges aren't directly involved in fomenting revolution, that they're status quo biased. And I guess there's a technical sense in which that's true. And I do think colleges and universities need to think about what responsibilities they might have for encouraging students to take out loans that maybe they can't repay. So that's sort of the way in which they're funded and the financing system of which they're a part and the arrangement they've made with society. All of these things are worth questioning, but the idea that they're fundamentally conservative institutions seems very strange to me. So if we're trying to create reasonable people, and universities, one of the places where we're going to do this, it seems like there's both content and pedagogy involved. So on the content side, part of it is exposing people to things like philosophy, like art history, like literature, and so forth. But then there's the pedagogy, which is how you teach this stuff. And, and I can imagine there are English classes where there, there really is, there's no constructive dialogue happening. And, and then there may be classes in business strategy where there's quite a lot of productive enhancement of reasoning capabilities going on. Is the danger, the biggest danger to our production of reasonable people, the gradual marginalization of of the humanities, or is it really a change in our pedagogical approach, which would discourage open conversation and and debate and the honing of our, our reasonable capacities? I think both matter, but I want to emphasize the second, although I'm, I'm reluctant to describe it as precisely a change. I mean, I think this has just always been a very difficult thing to do. And I'm not sure that there's some previous golden age in which we were doing it a, a heck of a lot better than we are now. It's hard to know, but I'm just reluctant to make that kind of comparison. If you had to choose between having an English class that was very dogmatic and an engineering class that was very uh, constructive in its pedagogical style, you would prefer the latter to the former? Yes. I do think that, I know you did it deliberately, right, to make the choice clear. I mean, we don't have to make that choice, but if I had to choose between those two things, I'd choose the latter. But it is a great loss, you know, just from the standpoint of comprehensive enlargement of mind. When, you know, you lose humanities programs, especially on the basis of the view that, well, you know, this isn't directly related to the widget making that I plan to engage in when I get out of college. I think there's a human loss to that. But I, I quite deliberately, partly for strategic reasons, but partly because I, I really believe this, did try to find a justification for liberal educations that made sense of the idea that scientists and humanists and soft social scientists and hard social scientists are engaged in a kind of common enterprise. Right. That is to say, when I say what we really need to do is to read Plato my colleague in the biology department may or may not agree with me, right? Maybe she's had some experience in her life that might make her think that reading Plato is very important. But instead, if you speak in terms of the idea that we're really looking to shape people so that they're willing to follow arguments where they go, that we're looking to help them and help ourselves, right? Because again, we're not that good at it. To help ourselves overcome prejudices, party, interest, 
fashion and so on. It's become less narrow. I, I think my colleague in the biology department would agree wholeheartedly that we're engaged in the same enterprise in different ways, right? That is to say that the standards that you use in trying to interpret Plato's Republic or some thoughts concerning education are quite different from the standards, right? A colleague of mine in the politics department might use to determine whether a given policy is likely to produce the desired result, right? We have to figure out what those standards are, mm-hmm. even if they're provisional, and then show how applying them might, might work. But to me, that's something that ought to be going on in every classroom, whether it's an English classroom or an engineering classroom or a business classroom, just about every classroom. Now, you described this, this thing called the um, we-don't-want-no-trouble phenomenon, and maybe there might be some academics out there who are trying to change their environment or trying to influence their environment in a positive way. And I think you also emphasize that this requires some courage. So there's courage involved in becoming a reasonable person, but there's also a courage involved in preserving an environment that is friendly to the creation of reasonable people. But you know, realistically, as a, somebody involved in the academic enterprise, the path of least resistance is just to focus on your work. What would you say to people who who are maybe interested in carving out a larger space for the creation of reasonable people? I'd say a number of things. The first thing I'd say is that don't shortchange your colleagues. That is to say that I think you have to be pretty ecumenical about who you think might be a potential ally in this cause. And it's important, I think, not to read your own campuses. I think we sometimes do. Sometimes we don't know our colleagues that well, right? And so we use shortcuts and tend to read our own campus in terms of national trends. We know, oh, there's an Office of Diversity and Inclusion over there. They're probably radicals of some kind or another, right? You might think just based on on national coverage of different incidents that take place on campus, but it may turn out that you can work with the folks in the office of diversity and inclusion. I've co-sponsored events with that office at Ursinus. There is a real investment, I think. Retail politics matter a lot on college campuses, right? So, you know, if I get up at a faculty meeting and make an argument, that might have some effect. And actually, it, it requires a certain courage. I mean, sometimes you're a minority of one in these kinds of debates. So you might learn later that there are other folks who are sympathetic, which is one reason it's worthwhile to stand up and make an argument because you might learn of others who are interested in the same argument. But a lot of it, I think, is forging connections on campus, sort of understanding what folks are about, gauging who might be an ally in this or that, not trying to do everything at once. And there can be some pleasure in that, it seems to me. And I guess I have two more things. I'd go back to that it takes five business that Robert George of Princeton talks about that just doesn't take that many people to affect a significant change, right? It might just be in your own department. It might be in a a wider program. It might be the establishment of a general education program or a general education pathway. So just to give you one example, at Purdue University, which is not a liberal arts college at all, it's nothing like a liberal arts college. It's a big state land-grant university, but they have a project called Cornerstone, which is a pathway through the general education requirements, at the end of which students get a certificate that's popular, brings students into connection with enduring more or less humanistic questions, and introduces them to you know coursework and faculty who can help them with that. So th- there are a lot of things one can sort of carve out, <laughs> right, in an atmosphere which may not seem naturally sympathetic. It doesn't take that many people to do it. So maybe I'll stop there 
except to say that I, I do think that it's important uh, setting aside the perspective of the, the individual trying to do something in an institution. I think it's important that we think a little bit collectively about organization, right? One reason it seems to me that certainly left progressive professors, even far left professors who don't, they're not a very big percentage on most campuses, have an influence is because they tend to be pretty well organized. I mean, they're there in a sense as scholar activists. They want to get things done. They're often sitting in departments with other folks who want to do the same thing. And so they're well organized. I find it hardening, you know, nationally that you have organizations coming online like the Heterodox Academy that is devoted to open inquiry and free expression. And more recently, the Alliance for Academic Freedom, which has a narrower focus, but is an organization, you know, some outside group, but of, of college professors who are concerned about the atmosphere of colleges and universities and interested in, in things that fall into the broad category of what I describe as reasonable, certainly, like open inquiry and free expression. Those organizations are valuable, I think. They help even, you know, a minority of one or two on a campus know, okay. There are other folks who are interested in this. Here are some things to read about it. Here are some arguments they're making. And again, maybe there are allies in places I didn't expect because you look at the list of folks who signed on to that organization. They're liberals, they're libertarians, they're moderates, and they're conservatives. So it might teach you that there are places you might find allies other than places you might have expected. If I may say one more thing, it's just an important argument, I think, to make to folks you're seeing on the sidelines, right? This is the obstacle, right? People prefer to sit in their offices. It's important to make the argument that long-term, or even in the relatively short-term, support for academic freedom and support for the university suffers, right? If they just leave it to their colleagues to define what universities are. So for example, if you imagine a situation which you say, well, who cares about what's going on in the gen ed curriculum? I've still got my lab. And you let left progressive professors define that curriculum in such a way that people from the outside look and say, well, it seems to me they're actually not impartial. They're practicing politics here. Right? What defense do you really have if Republican legislators come in, as they're doing now in many states, saying, you know, if there's going to be any politics here, I'd much prefer it be mine. What can you say to them other than, well, I, yeah, I reckon you've got us. So th there are some practical reasons to be worried about these things that might draw some people out of their labs. Interesting. So I, we didn't even get to talk about pedagogy and MOOCs and the future of the teaching profession. There's a whole bunch of other content that we didn't get to, but check this out. Let's be reasonable. A conservative case for liberal education. Jonathan Marks, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.